Exodus 16, beginning at verse 1. Once again, this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. They, meaning all the children of Israel, set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. In the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, leave not, Let not one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you all pray with me, friends? O oh Lord, this is your word, and we need it. 
truly, we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So help us now, by your Holy Spirit, not only to read, but to mark and learn and inwardly comprehend all that we read and study and that which is proclaimed tonight. As your word is preached, may you wield the ministry of the sword of the Spirit, even your holy word, in all of our hearts this night, that you would impress it upon us and work it down into our bones, the truth of it, and do it for your glory and our everlasting good. Grant us the Holy Spirit's ministry and illumination. And all for Jesus' sake we do pray these things. Amen. Do we really believe God to do or will do what he has promised to do? Do we really actually trust our Lord to make good on his promises? This is the fundamental thesis, if I can put it as a a question, the great theme of this text before us. And it, it is a question that often never quite escapes us in the Christian life. This is the indictment of doubt against the people of Israel in our text this evening. And if we're honest, it is often our indictment. Our hearts struggle as well, brothers and sisters. We don't believe that God will do what he has said he would do. A few Lord's Days ago, you may remember as we looked at that last section of chapter 15 here in Exodus, the people of Israel were moving on from the banks of the Red Sea where God had performed this extraordinary miracle of delivering them from the Egyptian army that was bearing down upon them. He parted the waters of the Red Sea. He saved his people. They walked through on dry ground with never even a splash upon them. And they moved on to a place called Mara, which means bitter, because the waters of the oasis there were bitter to drink. And there we began to notice a habit, you may recall, a habitual pattern of behavior that the Israelites were starting to display. They began to grumble and complain. They are discontent. And yet, as we saw, the Lord was long-suffering with them. By his supernatural power, he turned the bitter waters sweet. As Moses cast that log into the water, and then he moved them on to another oasis. Remember the oasis at Elam, where there was abundant supply for everyone. Springs for the twelve tribes of Israel and plenty of shade trees for rest and recuperation. Twelve springs of water, one for each of the tribes, and seventy palm trees, meaning seven times ten, wholeness times completion, meaning plenty, plenty, plenty for the rest and refreshment of God's people as they encamped there by the water. God was merciful to his griping people, we saw there at the end of chapter 15. And now as we turn to chapter 16, we see Israel continuing their journey through the wilderness toward the promised land. They leave Elam behind, and they journey through what is labeled in our Bibles as the wilderness of sin, somewhere between the restful place of Elam and Mount Sinai. Now, a quick thing for clarification, sin is just the name of the place. It's a Hebrew word describing a geographic location. It's kind of, it's like saying Appalachia, right? There's not a moral connotation there when we say the wilderness of sin. In fact, it's etymologically related to Sinai. You can Sin, Sinai, they're related geographically. The Hebrew word chata, that we translate as sin into English, it means to miss the mark. That's when we talk about sinning. 
So even though the wilderness of sin does not have a moral connotation behind it because it's the name of a place on a Hebrew road map, there is a delicious little bit of irony there, isn't there? At least for English readers. Because as Israel goes through this wilderness area, the wilderness of sin, there is a whole lot of sinning that is occurring there as they're going through this territory. We are met with this pattern once again. The people are found to be grumbling and complaining. And this time it's not about water, as it was back in chapter 15. This time it's about food. I didn't take the time to count it, but it struck me just as we were reading through these opening 21 verses and chapter 16 a few moments ago. Did you notice how many times the word grumbling popped up in the text? I should have taken the time to count through it. Maybe one of you will, and you can tell me how many times it pops up in your translation. But grumbling keeps coming up over and over and over again. I think the Lord is making a point here as Moses is giving this narration. In many ways, the story we read here in chapter 16 is the same one that we just studied at the end of chapter 15. It's repeating itself here in chapter 16. Many of the same themes, many of the same points, many of the same sins, many of the same applications. One of the most famous psalms in all of scripture is Psalm 136. Do you know Psalm 136? Feel free to turn there in your Bibles if you like. I'm not going to read from it, but feel free to let your eyes scan over it if you like. It's famous for many reasons, including how repetitive it is. Every verse, the second part of that verse, reads the same for 26 verses. Remember Psalm 136? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then there at verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. And on and on it goes, 24 more times, for his steadfast love endures forever, for his steadfast love endures forever. There's a story of a boy who asked his pastor about that psalm. Now, in the church where this boy was, the congregation would sing and sometimes read that psalm responsively, antiphonally. The minister would read the first half of that verse, and then the congregation would say in unison that same line over and over again for 26 verses, for his steadfast love endures forever. One morning, the boy asked his pastor, why do we need to keep saying that line over and over and over again for so long? And the pastor, with a wry grin, replied, Because, young man, you are so slow to learn and so resistant to believe it. God will graciously wear you down until your soul finally learns to trust its truth. Sometimes repetition is necessary because the lesson is vital. Sometimes we are so slow to learn, so stubborn of heart and stubborn of head, so slow and resistant to learn this truth in God and will wear us down until our soul finally Yields. Chapter 15 is being recapitulated in chapter 16. It's the same lesson largely, and it's repeated because we need to learn the points. We are often a slow and stubborn people, like sheep wandering astray and foolishly resisting that which is best for us. And so the Lord has for us in Exodus 16 a lesson that Israel must learn and we must learn. Now there's a lot going on in this chapter, and so that's why we've opted to divide it in two. So we'll study the first 21 verses this Lord's Day, and then God willing, we'll study from verse 22 onward next week. Uh, the first 21 verses, our portion tonight, really focuses on who God is, his heart and his character and his dealings with his stubborn, slow-to-learn people. And then the second half of chapter 16 is sort of God's game plan, his, his treatment, his enactment of his provision and his correction to shape the hearts of his people. So first half more of his character, second half more of his game plan. So we'll think more on the character tonight 
Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we'll think more on the game plan. And truly, this is the fundamental remedy. Part one, or rather part two, really makes no sense apart from part one. You need both the foundation and the roof, but it makes very little sense to build the roof before you build the foundation. The foundation, this is the fundamental remedy. Seeing more of God and seeing him more clearly. It's the most necessary step in dealing with this dissatisfied heart. We live in a day and age where we loved all kinds of quick-fix tactics and techniques. I have dissatisfaction. What should I do? Here's 12 steps to remedy your dissatisfaction. And maybe those techniques have their place and have their warrant. But Exodus 16 comes to us and says, you have a dissatisfied heart. Very well. What you need, fundamentally, is to see and behold and understand more of God, more of who he is. I love how one pastor put it. He's speaking of that famous quote from the Puritan Thomas Watson, till sin is bitter, Christ will never be sweet, says Thomas Watson. This pastor goes on, and really the reverse could be true as well. When you perceive the sweetness of Christ, when you know who God is, his kindness, his patience, his love, in the light of who he is, you then begin to see more clearly the sin that you once found so enticing, so attractive, so beautiful, you find that it's really truly ugly and bankrupt and bitter indeed. And so if Watson said, till sin is bitter, Christ will never be sweet, the reverse could be true as well. Until Christ is sweet, until God is grand and glorious in our eyes and in, in the vision of our hearts, then our dissatisfaction and sin will never quite be bitter enough. And that's the burden of the first half of chapter 16, to show us who God is that we might find ultimate satisfaction in him alone. Three ideas to outline our study tonight, and they all have a nice alliteration to the letters G and P. A grumbling people, a God of patience, and then a God of provision. We'll think along those three lines tonight. A grumbling people, a God of patience, and then thirdly, a God of provision. So first, let's think a grumbling people. Verses 1 to 3. Now, at this point, Israel is about a month and a half out of Egypt, having seen all the plagues rain down upon the mighty kingdom of Egypt, having been finally brought through that exodus, being liberated. They are mere weeks from that glorious moment, and despite all that God has done, the people really are unhappy. Verse 2. The whole congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What an extraordinary thing to say. It's dreadful. This is quite the exposure and diagnosis of their heart, isn't it? They're saying that they would have preferred God to have killed them with the Egyptians in the plagues rather than have to endure all that they are currently enduring in the wilderness. If I can paraphrase it, they're saying to Moses and Aaron, at least in Egypt we had plenty to eat. We'd rather have food and slavery than death and death rather than God's salvation and freedom and life with this momentary hunger. They don't think God's plan is working, and they don't trust him to provide for their needs. And naturally, since they're standing right there, the Israelites take out their grief on Moses and Aaron. However, Moses and Aaron are keen to point out and help Israel see 
that you might, gripe, you might be griping against us because we just happen to be standing here. But the one with whom you're truly angry, Israel, the one with whom is your actual beef, it's not the mere human leaders. It's actually the Lord himself. Matthew Henry puts it well. He puts it somberly when he writes this. It is no new thing for the greatest kindnesses to be misinterpreted and basely represented as the greatest injuries. The worst colors are sometimes put upon the best actions. No new thing for the greatest kindnesses to be misinterpreted and basely represented as the greatest injuries. You rained plagues upon Egypt, Lord God, four centuries, 400 years and more of slavery. You brought us out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Wonders you have done. You gave us life and liberty and redemption and ransom and salvation. Thanks a lot. We would rather have died in Egypt. We would rather have maintained slavery with those lovely meat pots and bread to the full. Some God you are. Fundamentally, what this exposes, this complaining, is a distrust and a dissatisfaction with the Lord their God. They do not believe that God is going to provide for them. Scripture cuts right to the heart there, doesn't it? Like an expert surgeon, the Holy Spirit, by the scalpel of his sword, the Word, must make an incision into our hearts in order to excise the rot and the infection that is in there. I wonder if, as you're thinking on this, if the diagnosis that's given to Israel feels all too familiar. If your toes feel just a little bit stepped upon. Mine do. I wonder how many of us could confess to this same tendency and sin, the sin of unbelief. I have a problem. I have a crisis. And at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, either by our thoughts or my thoughts or my actions, they betray the mindset of my heart, they betray the mindset of your heart, and that is we don't believe that God can help us, that God can meet our need, that God is enough, that he is sufficient, that he is a full and perfect deliverer to guide, to provide, to sustain, and to direct. God got me salvation, that's great. God got me out of sin, that's great. He's given me freedom and pardon, that's great. But here's a problem, I've got to take this one on my own. He can't do it. As one commentator put it, sometimes we allow ourselves to conclude that God is only interested in souls and not in bodies or banks or bills to pay. And yet that is not at all how the scriptures speak about God's care for his people. Close quote. Don't you love how this morning we were thinking about Jesus in his resurrected body, in this glorified bodily state? A preview of what is to come for all those who trust in Christ by faith. You think God doesn't care about the body, about the material needs of his people in the life that we live? No, no. Faced with this truth of scripture, we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, have we allowed an unbelief to slip into our thinking? Have have we allowed this kind of posture of, of doubt to creep into our minds and thus breed fear and thus fuel discontent or even a passive disdain toward God? Maybe even an outright aggressive disdain toward God by our doubting of his abilities and provisions. It's an old lie that we entertain. It's not new. I mean, the, the truth is Satan really has no original ideas. He repackages them. He puts a new gloss on them, maybe puts them up in a, some different wrapping and a different bow and a different name tag, but it's not really all that new. It's just a recapitulation of what he said back in Eden. Did God really say? Did God really say that he would care for you, Israel? 
Did God really say that he'd provide for you, Covenant Presbyterian Church? God's not enough, and he will not supply. His promises will not cover your need. There is no help for your trial. The everyday workaday problems of your existence are beyond his care, beyond his concern. He got you out of jail, so to speak, of sin, but after that, you're on your own. Have you been tempted to think that way? If so, we have allowed unbelief to fester in our hearts, giving life to discontentment and grumbling toward our God. And perhaps tonight we need to repent. Perhaps tonight we need to cry to God for pardon and cleansing and change if we have so succumbed and entertained and fostered that kind of festering belief. So that's the first thing, a grumbling people. But then secondly, let's look at verses 4 through 12. Here, the real bulk of the passage tonight, verses 4 through 12. Here's how God responds to the problem of his grumbling people. Here we see a God of patience. A God of patience. The Hebrew sentiments and their words really are quite despicable. It's almost as if to say God's power and mighty deeds and his miracles, they were enough for yesterday. What about today? What's God going to do to impress me today? It's almost a perverse twist on the old, you know, dance clown dance. How are you going to impress me today? Yesterday's show was nice. How about tonight? Yeah, look how God responds. Nothing by way of punishment for their insolence, not retribution, which would have been perfectly deserved, and God in his holiness would have been perfectly just to enact upon them, to rain down judgment as they stand. No, Instead, he promises again and again and again in these 21 verses to provide. He's going to rain bread from heaven. Don't you love that? that that's, that's overly wooden, plain language. He, he, it doesn't gloss it up in some sort of sophisticated, highbrow verbiage just so they get the point to make sure they don't miss it. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to rain bread from the sky, Israel. That's how I'm going to provide for you. He's going to send quail into the camp into the evening. He even gives specific instructions about how much to gather each day. He tells them how much to gather on Friday night before the Saturday's Sabbath because they should be resting on the Sabbath and not working and gathering. So they double up on Friday and they set aside enough for a few days. He does want careful obedience. Do notice that. He's still teaching his people, like a patient father, to learn to trust him and to obey him. But even as he is teaching them and training them and correcting them, he still continues to provide for their needs. God is not unaware of their scorn against him. The passage makes that clear. Look with me at verse 7. The Lord has heard your grumbling. Verse 8. The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. Verse 9, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. You ever been in a situation where you're, you're speaking with someone about another person, and suddenly you realize that the item of your conversation has been standing behind your shoulder the entire time? And flushed with embarrassment, your heart drops into your stomach and you simply pray that the floor underneath your feet would open up and swallow you whole so that you can escape the dreadful situation that you've put yourself in. Israel probably ought to feel something like that at this moment. Some sort of shame. Some sort of morbid embarrassment. Nevertheless, this text is a reminder to all of us that all our thoughts, all our intentions are known to God. 
Some of you might be familiar with some of the language in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. It has a prayer or a collect that they pray before communion. It begins like this. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's exactly right. Our God is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Hebrews 4, verse 13 puts it like this. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Many of you will know that R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, was famous for saying that all of life is lived quorum Deo, meaning before the face of God. Quorum Deo. God sees and he hears all of it. In other words, for the points of our text, our corruption and our selfishness and our embarrassing sinfulness are far worse than we could have ever imagined, and they are far more deeply rooted and ingrained than we would ever dare admit. And the Lord is not surprised by an ounce of it, not a lick of it. He knows it all. Every last drop of malice from our tongues, every last nook and cranny of resentment in our hearts. For us and for Israel, the diagnosis is the same. We deserve judgment and condemnation. I was listening to a sermon a number of years ago where the pastor pointed out that in our state apart from Christ, we deserve to be struck down dead where we stand for our flagrant wickedness toward our almighty holy creator. As a sinner, as we're walking on this earth and we're having these wicked thoughts towards God, these, these scornful thoughts towards God and the things he's made and his ways, paying him no heed, the, the murder and the hate and the lust that we harbor in our hearts, just our mere standing there demands, justice demands that, every, that we be struck down where we stand. And so every breath that we take and every millisecond that I'm not struck down is a mercy. And yet... Though it is instantaneous judgment on the spot that's what what is deserved, it's not instantaneous judgment that God's people receive. On the contrary, not only does he not destroy them, do you see that? Not only does he just choose not to destroy them, opt not to destroy them, more than that, he cares for them. He provides for them. When I was a, a child, one of our lunchtime supervisors at the elementary school that I attended, the the lunch ladies, we called them. They would come in to supervise the class during a recess, during the lunch hour. We had a lady, and I kid you not, her name was Mrs. Stern. Mrs. Stern. And she absolutely owned her namesake. Uh, A narrow-eyed, piercing gaze surveying the playground of miscreants. We, We could almost feel her scowl scanning the back of our neck waiting, just waiting for us to put one toe out of line so that as soon as we did, she would instantaneously pounce, appearing from nowhere, nail us in our transgression and send us off to the principal's office for further discipline. As it turns out, uh, Diane Stern was actually a lovely woman, a Christian woman, although my five-year-old self would never have imagined it, but she was quite a lovely lady, as I found out later in life. I suspect some of us regard God much in, the way that my, much in the same way that my schoolmates and I regarded Mrs. Stern. We think, though we would never admit, at least out loud, that God is sort of waiting around a corner, waiting to pounce, to, to ruin your happiness, and force all of us to begrudgingly strive after holiness in accordance with his rules, as though happiness and holiness were mutually exclusive. 
Actually, the scriptures teach that the holy life is the happy life. That's a sermon for another night. But do you remember the words of our Lord Jesus? Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is a patient Father. He is a Father, and he will discipline us in love as he sees fit. As children who need it, he will use trials, he will use pains to excise the cancer of sin from our hearts as he needs to. But he is a Father. He is a Father. And like any good father, God delights in his children. Your God loves to be kind to you, Christian. Patient with us in his grace. Isn't the proof of that in the gift of his son? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I wonder, do you think that God is lurking around the corner, miserly, stingy, begrudgingly doling out grace to you because he's somehow compelled to by his own rules, opening up his briefcase, doling out grace, scowling the whole time because he's forced to because he made a promise that he can't go back on? Not at all. Not at all. And the proof... The proof that this God of patience delights in his children and delights to show them grace. Well, the proof is that he's already given the best he has. The greatest gift. He's given his son. And that's the second thing that we need to see here. First, a grumbling people. Secondly, a God of patience. And then finally, a God of provision. Not only patience, but provision. Sometimes in our eagerness to diagnose and condemn Israel's spiritual malaise and sometimes in our eagerness to see our own spiritual sickness right along with their own, sometimes we move too quickly and we can forget that buried within that sinful ingratitude, and there was a sinful ingratitude, yes, but there was an actual need. They did, in fact, need food and nourishment. They needed it. Verse 13, God therefore provides it for them. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And the morning dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, as fine as frost on the ground. When the people saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. And everyone, we are told, has enough for his own household every day. Then verse 17 They gather some, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. The point here is so profound, and at the same time so simple, that we often overlook it, take it for granted, or maybe assume it without much thought. And that is, what the Lord gives is always right. It's always right. What the Lord gives is perfect. He gives us each day our daily bread, as our Lord taught us to pray. Not more, not less, but precisely what his children need. 
The point that the Lord is teaching the Israelites is the same point that the Lord was teaching the disciples and us in Matthew 6. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Jesus' point there being, pagan non-believers are worried about this. Why in the world should the children of God have such anxiety? Jesus says, he goes on, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but you, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you need shall be added unto you. I love how one man puts it. You cannot exhaust the generosity of God, and you don't have a need for which he is insufficient. There is no trial greater. There is no trial greater than the capacity of his grace. God always gives his people what they need, and he always gives us enough. Close quote. Do you believe that? And marvelous the thing which the Lord sought to give them was not merely a good meal, was it? Not just a good meal. What was the Lord's goal in all this? Verse 6. At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Verse 12. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know what? That I am the Lord your God. What is God after in the hearts of his people? It is that God's people would find satisfaction in God. And as he shows them patience and mercy, as he's slow to anger, as he's long-suffering with them, as he's abounding in steadfast love, it is to the end that they would know the greatness of his love and kindness. That he is their redeemer. And as they see his glory, as they see his provision, as they see his wondrous works and his mighty hand and the miraculous deeds that he performs, that they would find ultimate satisfaction there, namely in him. Not just in the quail meat that he gives, not just in the bread that he provides, not merely satisfaction within their stomachs, but that they would find satisfaction for their souls in him. Brothers and sisters, our God has rescued us from sin and death and hell as we believe on Jesus Christ. Is not the redemption of a hell-bound sinner from wrath and death and eternal justice and condemnation, is that not infinitely more difficult to provide than a meal or a shade tree for Israel or a job or a means to pay a bill or a godly spouse or a changed circumstance for us? Which is harder? If God could take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, if if he could transplant you into the kingdom of life and light in his beloved son, what's a little miracle of bread? It's entirely in line with what we thought about this morning. This is a resurrected and glorified body that Jesus has. You think a locked door is an obstacle to him? You think a wall is any obstacle for him? So too here. This is the God who rescued his people out of their hellbound state and transplanted them out of a kingdom of wrath and into a kingdom of light. You think a missed payment on a bill is anything that he can't handle for you? My goodness. As we said before from Genesis 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? Not our God. Not the God of Israel. Not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's agenda with Israel is that they might know him and his agenda with each of us is that we might know him and that we would leave behind every idol and every distraction clamoring for our affection and devotion and that our hearts might fix themselves always on him for our everlasting joy and the glory of his name. 
He is most able. He is most able to provide, and he is most worthy to be trusted and adored. So, people of God, won't you do it? Won't you trust him to provide, and won't you render unto him the glory that he is most due? Praise God for the ministry of his word to us tonight. Let's all pray. Father, we confess how easily we are dissatisfied and sometimes even unbelieving. Forgive us. Forgive us. Thank you that you are so patient with us, that you are gracious, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Even when we are confused and complaining and doubting and panicking, you are constant and sure. You are merciful and gracious. You are teaching us to trust you and you are meeting our need. So thank you. Help us to look to you and to trust you to the full, the true bread of heaven. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.